Welcome to the Dive into Reiki podcast. I'm Natalie, and together we will enjoy a series of conversations that explore the journey of Reiki practitioners and teachers from all lineages. 100% Reiki-focused stories, 100% human. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of the Dive into Reiki podcast. I'm very excited. I have a very special guest, Dana Young, with me. She grew up in an interfaith household in Queens, New York. So she used to be my neighbor before I was in Queen, just overlapping in time. And she was introduced by friends and neighbors to cultural and spiritual practices from all over the world. Dana was originally attracted to Reiki practice because of an abiding interest in Eastern spirituality, specifically Zen Buddhism. Dana has been practicing Reiki since 2006, is the owner of Dragonfly Reiki in Atlanta, Georgia, and she's a fully qualified Shihan or teacher of Komyo Reiki Do, and a direct student of Yakuten Inamoto, a Japanese Buddhist monk and the founder of this system. Dana is also certified as a Reiki master teacher in the Sui system for the natural healing through her teacher, Bright Dixon, and she's a certified life coach with additional semi seminary level training in spiritual formation and spiritual direction. And beyond all her wonderful achievement, uh, when I saw her bio, I was really stunned. We had so many uh, similarities with our Reiki in the same year. We live actually quite a few blocks apart in Queens, just in different times. And there are a lot of similarities, interesting Zen Buddhism. So I'm very excited to have this chat today, Dana. Thank you so much for saying yes. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Natalie. And it's so good to reconnect with a neighbor that I didn't even know that I had. <laughs> well, in quantum physics, we were neighbors, literally. Exactly. Ah. We still are, actually. Exactly. <laughs> As usual, I start every interview asking a little bit about your background and the first time you came into contact with Reiki. Right. So, and I know that we talked about this during our chat and it's a little bit of a long story. So I will try to give everybody the condensed version. But when I first encountered Reiki in 2006, I had been working for a global professional services organization. And one of my responsibilities was to train teams in India on content management systems. And during one of my trips there, I had an experience where I received some energy healing. So it wasn't Reiki, but it was another, you know, it was another form of hands-on and hands-off healing. And it completely alleviated the pain and the discomfort that I was feeling in my neck and my shoulder, my upper back. And this is chronic pain that I've had since my early 20s. And I couldn't explain what had happened. It just didn't make sense to me that this that someone that had only spent a few minutes with me and physically didn't even touch me was able to make that pain go away. So I resolved that when I got back to the United States, I would search and find somebody that did something similar to what this person had done. And during my internet travels, and I, you know, this is 2006, there wasn't as much about Reiki or really even most of these um, energy-based healing practices back then. I came across a mention of Reiki and it just made sense to me. It was like the lights came on in my head. And so I said, oh, I have to learn more about this. I have to find out more about that. And as you mentioned before, I had already been practicing and had been interested in Zen Buddhism and, and Japanese spirituality. So I had been studying and practicing these things for a while. So when I heard about Reiki, it seemed like a natural fit. 
So I found someone locally, my first teacher, Brad, uh, one first session and was immediately just sign me up for your next class. I, I have to learn this. And I knew that that was where I needed to be. And it's interesting because I've been practicing for over 17 years now. And I'm the kind of person that tends to get bored with things. And I'm still not bored with Reiki. Reiki is still continuing to teach and show me just incredible things over all of these years that I've been practicing. So yeah, and that, that's, so that's the long and the short story, of, uh, short story of how I ended up here. Yes. No, I love that. And again, I, I shared that with you too, about like discovering new layers and new layers. It's like a lifelong practice, uh, which yes. I couldn't even imagine when I started. You know, I started a little bit like you choosing whatever teacher I found, but I think you found that better teacher for your first round than I did. So that is good. And you grew up in a very interesting, you know, interfaith like environment. So I would love to, for you to talk a little bit about that and your interest in Buddhism as well, and perhaps how it's shaped in a way your Reiki uh, journey. So I grew up in an interfaith household, as you mentioned. My mom was Catholic, my dad is Jewish, and I grew up in the middle of Flushing, Queens, which for those of you who are familiar with Queens, the Flushing is the epicenter of most um, uh, East Asian and Southeast Asian uh, communities in, you know, that part of New York City. So I grew up around, you know, friends and people who were from Korea, from China, from uh, Vietnam. There were a lot of uh, people who had come over from Vietnam in the 70s as a result of the war. Um, and then also, interestingly enough, I, I grew up around a, a large number of um, Orthodox Jews. So it was this really big, I mean, literally like a really big melting pot, right? So I had, you know, I had, I had, you know, Korean friends, I had Indian friends, I had uh, Chinese friends, Vietnamese friends, I had friends from all over. And that really informed my worldview pretty early on. And, you know, when I think about where I lived, um, especially like where my, my um, grandparents' house was, where I spent a lot of my time, you know, down the block in one direction, you know, was, uh, you know, uh, a Jewish temple. Two more blocks down, there's a Hindu temple. In the other direction was a Korean Zen temple. <laughs> and scattered throughout were just, you know, there were, pra you know, uh, uh, practitioners of Chinese medicine. And so I really say that in a way I came by this kind of honestly, because I was surrounded by it. And although, um, I don't think that it really made a huge impression on me until I was an adult. I think I was just absorbing all of it. I, I and I was just really fortunate that I had friends who I would go to their house and, and so I could see how they lived in practice too and broaden that worldview. That's beautiful. So you entered to Reiki through a more probably physical alleviation, right? It was this chronic pain that went away. And how did that evolve into more of a spiritual practice uh, as a year passed? That is a really great question because I think that the vast majority of people who come to Reiki come because they've heard that it can help with pain relief, stress relief, relaxation. And, and as you know, really in terms of what we can say medically, that's really all that we can say, right? We can say that Reiki as a as a, well, and I really don't like the use of the word healing modality, but as a healing practice can offer <clears throat> relaxation, can offer stress relief, pain relief, 
um, can help with some physical discomforts. So a lot of people come to Reiki practice that way. I mean, that's the vast majority of the clients that I see. That's what compels some of my students to come and learn Reiki. And of course, that was initially what interested me about Reiki. I didn't know until I started to delve deeper into Reiki practice that it was really a spiritual practice, right? It's a spiritual healing art. And the healing comes from the depth of the work that we do in the, sp in the spiritual practice. So you can have the surface level healing, the relaxation, the stress relief, the pain relief, and all of those things are excellent and they're wonderful. But when we get down to the level of the spiritual practice, which is where both you and I really have a lot of our interests, that's where everything changes. That's when we start getting into the disposition of the mind and how our mind creates suffering. And so you can see that this is also this is also what my abiding interest prior to that was in Buddhism. I really encountered Buddhism in my late twenties um, during a very difficult and and you know uh, you know just dealing with a lot of emotional stuff, dealing with. Uh, and, and dealing with chronic pain as well. But that was my first clue that a lot of what we experience has its origins in our mind state. And so finding out about the, the Buddhist Noble Eightfold Path and, you know, finding out that, you know, that really the source of the suffering starts here. <laughs> and if we can start to alleviate the source of the suffering here, then we can start to feel relief and feel more balance and continuity in the rest of our body. So that was having, finding out that this practice, that Reiki practice, um, followed that same path that I, you know, in, in large terms, you know, that followed that same path historically that, that this other spiritual path that I've been following, it just made sense. Like everything clicked, everything came together for me. Lovely. And you're one of the first uh, teachers bringing uh, a more Japanese traditional style to the South, right? We were talking about like you were the first in Georgia. And I wanted to for you to explain a little bit your experience doing that. And also for people who don't know what Komyo Reiki Do is, a little bit, what makes it different, for example, from the regular Reiki or the Shiki Reiki or Gendai Reiki and the other probably 150 lineages more than we have today? I'm not sure that I could speak to all of them, but... Uh, with Komio Reiki Do, which was developed by um, Hyakuten Inamoto, who lives in Japan. And as you mentioned before, he is a, a Japanese Buddhist monk. So he trained with Shoko Yamaguchi, who um, her son, Tadao Yamaguchi, founded Jikiden Reiki and, you know, continues that practice to this day. So as my teacher says, you know, they shared a, a Reiki mother. And, and I would say that there are probably, a, from what I understand, there are a lot of similarities with the practice. Um, but in Sensei's particular case, he really felt that there were some spiritual aspects and dimensions of Reiki practice that had been um, de-emphasized in favor of the more therapeutic approach that was becoming more increasingly popular in the West. So his goal was to try to reintegrate those spiritual practices back into what we now know as Komio Reiki Do. It was originally Komio Reiki Kai. And then maybe about five years ago, he, he changed the name to Komio Reiki Do. And as you know, Do means way or practice. And so he felt that in keeping with this idea that this is a spiritual practice, he wanted to 
make that you know more abundantly clear in the name of the practice itself that that we are that this is the way of Reiki, so to speak. So you know, while I can't speak to some of the differences between that and Gendai Reiki. Um, because I haven't practiced Gendai, so I don't really know. But I do know that he and Hiroshi Doi are friends and contemporaries, and they, you know, and they collaborate together. So I'm sure that there are a lot of similarities and some differences. But what I would say, like how Komi Reiki Do and certainly all of the Japanese lineages differ from most of the Western style lineages, is that the practice does not contain add-ons or things that were introduced into Reiki practice after Hawaii Takata passed in 1980. So things that uh, other Reiki practitioners may do, such as working, you know, like uh, referencing the chakra system or working with crystals or drums or spirit guides or, you know, any of those other what we would call like more new age type practices or, or practices that might have been appropriated um, from other cultural and spiritual practices, those things are not part of Komi Reikido. So Komi Reikido, as my teacher says, he, he said it is it is a keep it simple Reiki system in practice, and which is one of the things that I really love about it. But also that the elements of the practice are things that are they are specifically Japanese. Yeah, and I think that is a very clear way to put it, and I really appreciate it. And one thing you mentioned that I love is. Hiroshi Doi from Gendai Reiki and Yakuten, like from Inamoto, they're like, they collaborate, they're friends. In Japan, there is no wars or fights about religion. It's all about collaboration. How can we right. deepen our religion talking? And I think that is also a great moment to, no matter the lineage we are, really having that approach is no worse or better. Like even, again, two very famous teachers from different lineages actually work together, right? So that's another beautiful way of incorporating some Japanese tradition that sometimes we may not be very aware in the West, where it's more like it's my religion or not like or like there is not collaboration within region, right? They're very defined. This is Catholicism, this is being Muslim. But in Japan, it's a lot more fluid and even the rituals sometimes travel from one to the other. So I think that's, that's a beautiful thing to remember, Reiki. Thank you for mentioning that. I, I didn't know they collaborated, so I love it. Mm-hmm. They do. They do. And, and I think that that's really important for us to understand, too, because we are trying to understand, as you know, the roots and the origins. And, and your teacher, Franz, does a lot of that, too, trying to understand the roots and the origins of these practices and especially the cultural and spiritual dimensions that may have influenced Mikao Usui and Chujuro Hayashi, you know, all of these early teachers. Like, what are those things that that they brought to their practice that helped them develop their Reiki practice further, right? We, you know, and we're not always going to know everything, of course, because we don't know exactly how Mikawasui practice. We don't even know exactly how Chujuro Hayashi practice. We have some, you know, we have some breadcrumbs. We have a little bit of a trail, but we're not going to know everything. But to the extent that, you know, we have these, you know, these, these Japanese elders who are able to say, this is the stuff that's typical in our culture. These are the things that Japanese people have, you know, have cared about. These are the things that culturally have been important to us over the centuries. And this is how we view the nature of the energies of heaven and earth and how they work together. All of those things are really important for us. And also, I think the other thing, and, and I would sh I'm sure that you'll agree, is that it enables us to have respect for the cultural and spiritual practices as they are, 
without us feeling like we need to add a whole bunch of things on top of it. In other words, respecting that this practice, even though it seems in some ways um, very simple and elegant on the surface, it goes very deep. And respecting the depth of, that this practice can offer us if we honor where it comes from and also like what the boundaries of that practice are. No, I I think I agree with you. And for me, like every time I have a student then and like crystals, I'm like, just be clear, this is Reiki and you're adding crystal as a modality. Like just being always very sure this is really the core of the practice. And, and in a world where we're talking about cultural appropriation, it's like really how do we respect I think it's really trying to honor at least the cultural background uh, and keeping it simple, right? Keeping this is what a Japanese person will do. It's not like we cannot do it, but then we need, yeah, let's not just take it. And sim- I think sometimes we make it almost like not simpler. The, I have the wrong word. We make it almost like lighter, uh, right? And we need to add things so it's more powerful. I think that search for power is a very, it's an add-on that doesn't always honor the original tradition. Or that right. well, and what is and, and what is power anyway? Exactly. What, what does that what does that mean? You know, like I always think about, you know, Hyakuten Sensei says, uh, you know, when we do less, we can do more, which is <laughs> which is completely a very Buddhist and a very Japanese thing to say. But I keep that in mind because I know that my tendency, probably as an American and as a Westerner, is this idea that if if X amount is good then even more is better. But we know that in Reiki practice, that's not necessarily the case. Often it's when we step back and we allow and we surrender that, that the practice reveals itself to us. And, 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 and Reiki will come through and, and show us what needs to happen or not happen, right? So, so much of that surrendering is about not doing, but that is such a foreign concept to so many people who, you know, who's, who, whose cultural understanding comes from the West. Mm-hmm. Um, so not having to sit with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had to, for myself, I had to say, okay, because I heard a lot of non-doing and sometimes, you know, those concepts are hard to grasp. Okay. It's non-doing, it's not thinking, not attaching, not analyzing. But there is a doing that is a different doing that comes naturally to Japanese people, which is do be focused, do be present, right? Do yes. be still. So because for me, non-doing, when I heard it's like, oh, I'm laying on the sofa watching Netflix. That's my non, because again, I'm a Western person, right? It's like, oh, non-doing is vacation. So that non-doing in Japanese means also being very efficient and not getting distracted and just be and. I, I see that my dojo, like they constantly refine the art of doing uh, some movements with less effort. Like the less right. you do, the more elegant and the more sharp and the more beautiful are the result of that movement with the sword. And yes, that's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you see that in all of the Japanese arts. Yeah. That that it's not that they're not doing anything, but they're being very mindful and intentional in the way that they are choosing to do or not do something which is very different i love that we're decoding the non-doing because that and non-duality they're words that really are going around lately or emptiness and people are like uh sure what do you mean by that right it takes a little bit of, of time to figure out so i really appreciate it <laughs> right well yeah you could spend the rest of your life trying to sit there and unpack those teachings right the form is emptiness and emptiness is form and all of those those zen things that i love so much those paradoxes but within the paradox contains the truth um and and i and that's what i love about 
Reiki practice for me is that I think that we need a physical practice of some sort, whether that's, you know, Reiki practice or your sword practice or, or meditation to help us understand those concepts, because otherwise they get tangled up in our mind and we start trying to analyze and trying to intellectualize what those experiences are. And the only way that we're going to understand them is really by participating in that experience. I was reading some instruction for SESA meditation and the translator used the term research in terms of your own mental research. And he was like saying, SESA is to be embodied, not researched. And I found that is such a beautiful way of putting it. But I, although you have this very high level and grasping of this concept, you're also very practical, right? So you also share it with people who are incarcerated, with diverse communities. How do you bring those concepts and how do we serve these more diverse communities versus just keeping it in a very high level that may not be appealing if I'm a working mother, single mother of two, and, and have to have a Reiki practice? Like, how do we make this more approachable? So I think right. you're probably a great person to help us with that. I do teach pretty frequently. And, I and you know, one of the really great things I think about living in Atlanta is how much more diverse it's gotten over the last 20 years. So I am starting to see people from different walks of life and people who are interested in Reiki. And, you know, what I think one of the things that when I encountered Komi Reikido, there was such freedom in that practice. And partly because of that, you know, his the the primary slogan for Komi Reikido is place your hands, surrender and smile. Yeah. And I remember, isn't that great? Yeah. And I remember when I first sat in the, you know, in the classroom in New York City learning from from uh, Sensei in 2010, that there was just like this big burden lifted from me because so much of what I had learned from Reiki practice, and this is not a judgment against any teacher, or any particular system. I just think it's the way that Westerners tend to be. There were so many rules and there were so many arbitrary things. And, and because of the kind of person that I am, because I am uh, fairly linear and like to problem solve and like to follow, you know, instruction and order. I mean, you know, like I said, I trained people on content management systems. So I'm really, I'm really good at doing those sorts of things. But I found that it was coming into conflict with my practice and it was making me really anxious about my practice. You know, all of these arbitrary rules about what you're supposed to do, you know, where your mind's supposed to be and this and that. And he was just saying, don't worry about it. Right. Just place your hands, surrender and smile. Just allow yourself to just be in that space with Reiki and allow that to happen. I mean, of course, maintaining good boundaries and all of that, but but just being able to do that with such freedom. And I think that when I think about that now working with clients and, and students, you know, I, yeah, I do work with, you know, students who are single moms. Some of them, you know, some of the ones that I work with have, you know, children who have special needs. So they may be on the autism spectrum. They may be disabled in some other way. Um, you know, people who are busy, who have lots of things going on. And what I tell them is like, don't complicate this. You know, we can get into this idea that there's only one right way to practice Reiki. And if we just, you know, if we just follow those rules and we do it this way, that's the only way we're going to be successful. So we end up in this like, perf like the, what is it? Uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. In fact, I was just having this conversation last night with some of my students because we were getting together for a call and some of them are interested in moving into more of a professional practice. 
So we were talking about doing some mentoring. And that was one of the things that came up was how do I deal with this idea that there's only one correct way to do things? And if I don't do it that way, am I doing it wrong? And, you know, as I've told my students for years, the only way that you can do this practice wrong is by not doing it at all. <laughs> you know, so if you if, if, if all the time that you have is 10 minutes to do maybe a little bit of, you know, self-treatment each day, maybe spend a little time doing, you know, some of the meditations, if that's all you have time for, it's better than not doing it at all. Right. And then when you do have a little bit more time, then you can luxuriate in spending that time and giving yourself over to that time for a more extended practice. And I know that that comes into conflict with some of the ideas that we have about doing these rigorous practices. And especially when you see uh, the, the instructions that come from a Kawasui, right, you know, for, for practicing daily, like practicing with the, with the Reiki precepts. And it's, you know, it's practicing morning and evening and, you know, these, you know, 30 minutes in the evening, 30 minutes in the morning. And most modern people, especially women, don't have time for that. So how do we find a practice or create a practice for ourselves that that is nimble and adaptable, but also sustainable? So I talk to my students and my, you know, a lot about this. Um, because I think that that's important. And then, you know, what you were talking about too, like working with certain underserved communities, you know, how do you offer care to them? How do you let them know that this is available to them? And it doesn't have to be this big structured, um, this big structured thing that has to proceed a certain way. Um, you know, I like to feel like there's some freedom within our practice. I you literally you and I have like very so many similarities because I felt constrained with Western Reiki because I could never remember the hand position or like <laughs> the order when did I did what symbol or when right. and also like I didn't like doing symbols in the air so like I would put people like I would almost like force them to have their eyes shut and I when I heard like oh you can actually explore and be free like my Reiki practice just took off like it felt so right to just explore it with respect, not to explore it to go crazy and invent a new Reiki, but just like, what happens if I place my hand for 15 minutes on my heart and I do nothing else? And that you realize there is freedom as long as you're approaching respectful to adapt it to your own life. I remember my first podcast was with Nicholas Pearson and we're mm. still in the pandemic. It was just like, we're six, min uh, six months in and we're all, all over the place. And he said, I cannot sit right now. I just place one hand, one minute, I read the precepts and, but I practice all day, but in tiny doses. And that worked for him at the time. Like, you know, we were literally at the time, all of us freaking out. And is that what works for you as long as you're respectful? So I'm really glad that, that you're bringing that subject because sometimes we do feel if I don't practice 45 minutes, then I better not, but this is the opposite. You yeah. can practice even a minute. Right. And, and, and I think that there's place for both of them. Right. So that's what I said. If you have the time, then you give yourself over to more time. So when I know that I'm not as rushed, I mean, I usually prefer to do, you know, a, a certain aspects of my practice in the morning before I get out of bed and before things get really busy. You know, I mean, I have a busy life. I have a teenage daughter and my husband works from home. And so, you know, this house can be a little chaotic. So I have to find those moments of peace when I can. And so if that's the first thing in the morning for 10 minutes, that's what I'm going to do. But I also know that it changes the quality of my day 
when I do give myself that time. And then if I have a little bit more time, let's say I'm not in a rush in the morning or it's the weekend, then I can give myself over to a little bit more time. Um, or if I have some time in between clients and I'm at my and I'm at my office and I've got 30 minutes in between clients, I can give myself a little bit more time then to refresh myself before I see the next person that I'm going to see, right? So just trying to find ways to keep my cup filled. And that's really what I keep trying to encourage my students instead of getting stuck in the strict practice that's so difficult to maintain. And I think the other thing too, and I, and I know that you're aware of this, is that sometimes this idea of the strict practice comes from the fact that we had, and specifically that Japanese Zen Buddhism that came over, right, in the 50s and 60s. And you had these people practicing, you know, Zazen in the semi-monastic settings, right? When you think about San Francisco Zen Center and you think about the Zen centers that are in, you know, in New York and, and these other cities, they have these very formal practices. You go and you practice, you know, a sitting meditation for a certain amount of time. Then you do a walking meditation for a certain amount of time. And then you chant the sutras for a certain amount of time. And that's, it's like going to church, right? <laughs> like it's, it's a thing that's done and it's a very formal practice. But it's also, it comes from a monastic setting. And this is what monastics do. A monastic practice, this is their full-time practice. That is their job, their vocation, their calling. They, you know, typically don't have families to take care of, or if they do, um, you know, it's it's in a much more limited context. So we keep trying to, trying to uh, paste these practices that come from a completely different context into our modern life and our modern life really doesn't support that. It might, if you decide to go on a retreat or something like that for a, a daily practice for, I don't know, a, a mom and a, you know, and, and someone in, you know, with a very busy professional job and, and other responsibilities, we have to do the best that we can. I, again, I really appreciate also that because I have, I haven't put the two and two together. Like, yeah, I've been in a monastery. I cannot keep up with that, you know, working and also monks, I don't know who does the laundry, but I didn't ever see them doing laundry. Uh, <laughs> they do clean the monastery all day, though, because that's part of their practice. They do. It's part, yeah. And cleaning is part of their spiritual practice, yeah. right? But, I mean, they're, they're putting mindfulness into everything they do. Plus, somebody has to do it. Yeah. But, you know, there's even a cook and stuff. So I think it's it's really great. And I think this is very important for a lot of people to hear. Because I think sometimes we actually stop practicing because we can practice. And then we get disappointed in ourselves. And there's like a whole negative feeling of failure almost when there is no failing a week, as you said, right? There is no, this is, there is never failure unless you start like charging people to take away some weird crappy thing they you invented. So that's probably the only thing. <laughs> well, you know, it, and the other thing that, that Hyakuten Sensei teaches too is he talks about how your life is your dojo. Um, and, and your dojo, of course, you know, a dojo is a place, any place where we do spiritual practices. So in a way, what I really appreciate that about that is that he's reminding us that we can bring our spiritual practices into our everyday life. So you're just talking about the monastics and the monastics. They clean the monastery. They cook. They wash clothes, although you haven't seen them do that. But they, I'm sure they do. And, and so we know that they are being encouraged to do that with mindfulness, whether that is a meditation practice or let's say in the case of, of, of Catholic monastics, maybe they're, they're doing that with a prayer practice. And I have spent time at monasteries and convents, Catholic ones, and that is part of what they do. They're very, they, they're very similar to the Zen, you know, the Zen monastics in that way that they, that they make their daily work part of their prayer practice. 
So he's inviting us to do the same thing. So part of that is about where is my mind going? You know, where, what am I paying attention to at this moment? Um, how am I being fully present? How am I offering gratitude and thankfulness in this moment? Where am I practicing diligently, right? Like where am I putting my attention and my time and my focus and my priorities to? Um, am I offering the things that I'm doing with compassion as well, you know, caring for my loved ones, um, caring for my community. So we can take aspects of this practice and bring it into our everyday. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't like washing dishes. That's one thing. And I used to have <laughs> me neither. <laughs> and when I moved to this apartment, I have no dishwasher and I had to face it. So I turned it into a practice because I literally dislike it so much of gratitude. Like I have running water. I lived in Venezuela. Running water, I didn't have most of the time. So, you know, I have running water. I have dishes. I have a tiny New York kitchen, but I have a kitchen. And it's transformed the way I do dishes because it's now like not every day. There are some days where I still like, I don't want to see them. But most days now it's an act of gratitude. It's not a chore. So I think, you know, what you mentioned is really important is how do we, how do we present and also for me using gratitude in especially in the house chores has been life-changing uh you know and the house is looking a lot better as well so it's been <laughs> it does make a difference and and I know that sometimes I struggle with that as well but again it's the same thing like how do we shift that mindset and and you know as well as I do that the way that we shift our mindset is working with the Reiki precepts so the Reiki precepts has really become a foundational practice for me. I mean, I would say even above and beyond the hands-on practice, um, because I think that if we don't address what's going on with the mind, everything that we do, even with the, you know, the balancing energetically, those things can only go so deep, right? If we are still stuck in, in habitual uh, thought patterns, um, if we are stuck in negativity if we are stuck in that level of anxiety where we're just in a tailspin we can't we can't see our way ahead of us with any kind of sense of gratitude or peace so i have really focused so much of my practice i mean personally and also with my students and even my clients i talk about the reiki precepts to my clients all the time because it's the one of the things that you can take out of reiki practice and you can teach anybody about them yeah. Right, because you don't have to be initiated into Reiki practice to understand them. Um, you don't have to do, you know, I mean, really, even some of the meditations you can take out of Reiki practice and, and share them with people. But what I love about it is that, you know, once you memorize them and once you make them part of your daily practice, it changes the way you think about everything. So even just what you were talking about, like shifting your attitude about, I really hate doing these dishes. This is such a, you know, a tedious chore. It's so boring. I really wish I had a dishwasher to, okay, I'm going to take this time and just be grateful that I have running water. Grateful that I was able to cook this wonderful meal that I just ate, you know, that I, that, you know, that, that, and you know, what um, Hyakutin Sensei also teaches us too, um, this idea of gratitude, the Itadaki Mas, this, this gratitude for um, all of the trouble that everybody went through in order to bring this meal to me. So, so really coming full circle with everything, but you can't do that if you don't, if you don't have spiritual precepts 
that guide and ground you in your practice. Yeah, they're they're great because like they remind you like don't just be in anger, like be aware. And and you did a wonderful workbook. I went through it. Uh, to the workbook. So I had actually two questions for you and I did these two interviews ago and I really liked it. I want to hear your favorite precepts and then the one that challenges you more. So we'll start mm. with favorite. I think my favorite precept is, I, I mean, it's really easy to say the, you know, the, the gratitude, be grateful. Um, and it is a favorite, but I think the one that I have really been working with the most, and I spend a lot of time teaching about, is that one that's, uh, you know, do your work diligently, be diligent, be devoted, whatever, you know, version, you know, that we translate that to, um, devote yourself to your work. Because the minute that you say that to somebody who is American or Western background, immediately they think, oh, that means I have to, I have to hustle more, right? I have to work harder. And, and I, you know, and my first thing is like, this does not encourage us to work harder. This is not about your job. Okay. <laughs> this is not about Western values about really even I would say like the, you know, the, uh, um, the Protestant work ethic, which is such a big foundation for how we here, especially in the United States kind of understand our worth um, in terms of, you know, personal achievement and community achievement and and that sort of thing um, that your worthiness is tied to your godliness and and it's all about how hard you work and how much money you put away this is not about that at all it's really about how you show up for your life and these are the things that we've been talking about like are you are you showing up and being mindful in the way that you are approaching your daily chores um, how you're how you're taking care of your loved ones um, even the decisions that you make so are the decisions that you're making in your daily life and, you know, and are they in alignment with your values? Are they in, in alignment with your spiritual beliefs? Are they in alignment with the things that you care about? So are you, for example, are you working for a company that is doing things that, is, that are destroying the environment? You know, are you feeling some discomfort about that? Because maybe the environment is something that you value. So is that something that maybe you need to reconsider doing? And no one's saying that this is, okay, you have to quit your job tomorrow, but how can you start to bring your spiritual practice into your daily life so that these things are in better alignment? How are you basically walking, you know, walking that talk? You know, are you taking care of your body? Are you, you know, are you trying to eat in a way that is sustainable, right? So for example, my husband um, does vertical farming. So he grows organic microgreens. So as a result of that, we've been paying a lot more attention. And I mean, I always have because I'm, I'm a gardener, but we pay attention to sustainable farming practices and wanting to support, for example, our local community garden that does a lot with the community, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and making sure that people understand about, you know, about uh, supporting pollinator gardens and not using chemicals in your lawn. So sometimes those things can start off from one, you know, from one little thing, one little change that you make. So a lot of that to me in that particular precept is are your actions in alignment with your values, with the things that are important to you? Are you giving your mindfulness and your time and your energy to those 
things that that truly matter to you? Or, you know, are you doing things because you feel like you're supposed to? So I feel like for me, that's the one where the rubber really hits the road in terms of, of our practice. Like, how are we actually applying our practice to our daily life? Because we could be grateful all day long. We could be nice to people, but we could also be making some, you know, a lot of choices that are causing us more suffering or causing the planet or our community more suffering because we're not doing that mindfully. And, and I think it's a process. So, you know, I tell people to make changes that feel manageable and sustainable for you. Yeah. Like, you know. And, and I love that you say manageable and sustainable. Again, this is not about quitting the world. It's not about like, it's just literally start to shift little by little. And those changes then really impact your life. Because if you try to do too much at one time, it's like trying to practice one hour every day. If you have a busy life. Right. Like you leave, exactly. leave your job and a week after you're like in a worse paying job because you're desperate to pay your rent, right? Like, so it's it's really also like exactly. that. And and I'm with you with gratitude. I love gratitude, but I realize most of the times we feel gratitude, like there is also layers of gratitude, right? There is a deeper gratitude that is not as easy as we're saying. Like I can be grateful for a great meal very lightly, but you know, there is that deeper level of gratitude that we can explore. It's like, am I grateful for everybody, as you said, that broke, the farmer, the truck driver, the sun, the trees. So there is also gratitude sometimes I feel with, with and including myself, at least I feel myself, I'm, I take it lightly, right? I'm like, oh, I'm grateful. Am I really? Am I really as grateful as I think I am? How much does yeah. it last, right? Like, so I think it's very- yeah, the surface gratitude, right? The, the you know, the immediate, the easy yeah. gratitudes. But when are you grateful when you're faced with a challenge and how that challenge helps you grow? Not right. the first day. I can tell you I'm a demon. I'm the demon of Tasmania and then I become grateful. But yeah, and they'll be. Yeah. I mean, are you grateful for that illness? And and you know, and, and sometimes things happen that are completely out of our control are terrible and tragic. And maybe we aren't necessarily grateful for those experiences, but we may be grateful for how other people show up for us during that time. Yeah. Right or how we were able to be supported or sustain ourselves during some really um, awful or difficult experience or challenge. So, I mean, I, and I could think of many off the top of my head, but I, you know, so we may not be grateful for the thing that got us into the situation that we're in, but we may be grateful for how um, in the larger sense, you know, the universe, the community, our friends, our family, people, strangers show up and help us in our time of need. So, so sometimes it takes a little bit of work to figure that out, but you know, if you, if you have a fairly well-established gratitude practice, it's going to be easier for you to find those things. You're not going to dwell in the negativity as often or as, for as long. Um, and, and, you know, you would ask me which precept challenges me the most. And I would say that, that would be worry because I mean, I just generally am kind of an anxious person. Um, have kind of that anxious energy and that energy propels me forward, but it's also a problem because my mind is always ruminating on things. It's always 10 steps ahead, trying to think of the next solution, trying to plan, trying to foresee and forestall any potential problems, you know, and I can't help it. I mean, I'm a Virgo, but, <laughs> but, but I think that it, that's the thing that causes me the most um, 
mental, emotional fatigue. And certainly I know that if it gets caught up in my body for too long, it's going to cause physical symptoms too. So having to work with learning how to release and let go and surrender. So that's, I think some of those teachings that Kyakuten Sensei brings into Komi Reikido has been really helpful for me. Um, this idea that, that really all I have to do is just show up. <laughs> And I, and I don't have to be in control of everything. Those, those are great lessons to, to learn and to be reminded of every time because it's incredible how some very easy lessons, you incorporate them like 100% and stuff like letting go of control, you need to relearn it almost every day. Like it's, every day. it's like, oh, I'm supposed, I'm not in control. It's okay not to be in control. Like, you know, it's. And it's safe not to be in control because then we're going to fear and worry. So it's, it's, I think it's a lifelong work, but having that awareness, at least that worry is not going to take you everywhere for me is already. So I'm so grateful for that because before my worry was very real. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, this is real. What do you mean? I don't worry. If I don't worry, I'm going to die tomorrow. Like something bad is going to happen. And understanding actually worry. It's just a way of processing that extra energy and like, but really you're not in control. Worry is not making you more in control. It feels like. No, if anything, it's, if anything, it's creating um, more chaos because your mind is all over the place, right? You know, because you're, you're, you're not even focused on what might be in front of you. In other words, sometimes the solutions are right in front of you, but because you're so wound up with all of these what ifs and, and, and all of these other possibilities, you can't even see what's right in front of you. And I think that that's one of the gifts of the gratitude practice is that when I find myself starting to mentally spin with worry, I will shift into, okay, what can I be grateful for in this moment? In other words, so I find gratitude to be that like grounding practice for me because at that moment that I come back to, you know, just for today or today only. Okay. So what's happening in this moment? What can I, what can I be grateful for? How can I extend my kindness to someone? What action can I take or not take right now that, you know, will shift this particular situation? Um, So for me, like the, the Reiki precepts are really like a living practice. They're, they're not just these what are they, these ideals or these things that you just put up on your wall and they sound really nice. Yeah. I mean, they're things that I try to live every single day. Yeah. And I think for me that that is the same way. And I think a lot of like people who probably are in contact with more traditional uh, teachings because it's part of everything. I do martial arts and they have also the martial arts precepts and they're very similar. They're all about worry and anger because literally if you're worried, you're going to get killed by the other samurai. These things come from, so, but you know, we, we go every day and I'm not going to say into battle, but you know, you're going every day to work with people who also are struggling and who also are all over the place. So, you know, the present helps for me navigate that with compassion because it's not all happening to me. Everybody's struggling. And what I do also affect other people, which I'm not as aware because obviously, you know, my ripples. So navigating these with the, compassion and the precepts for me changes the way you can actually live your professional life or even your friend's life as well. Right. And I I feel like, especially in the last few years since the pandemic, that this practice of the Reiki precepts has become even more important because of the just incredible suffering that I've seen 
um, from clients and in the community. You know, I mean, I had one day where a client came in and she told me that she had lost seven members of her family to COVID. Like, how do you, how, how do you even, how do you, how do you even sit with that? I think, but you say something very important. You sit with it because sometimes I feel as practitioner, we say Reiki will make you feel better. And that's diminishing this, you know, it's almost diminishing what they go through. And we tend, as Reiki practitioner, like we tend to like, come here. I'll, I think you just sit with it and breathe and, and be with them. And then place your, as you said, place your hands around her and smile, right? I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm not coming to Reiki though, but I'm still in that. Yeah. Well, you know, your your practice with Franz is not yeah. terribly dissimilar. And and I know he did train with Yakutin Sensei yeah. as well. So you know, we're we're sort of like, you know, sisters in terms in terms of our practice. They're very they're very similar. Yeah, in a lot of They're things. more similar than they're different. Yeah. And and I have to say I've interviewed people who are in lineages that I could say could not be more different. Uh, but when they have practice over 20 years or 25 years without ego. They are exactly the same place. And that really, for me, was a surprise with some people that have completely different and they have guides and they have angels. But then I practice from a place of emptiness. I let go of reaction. And I'm like, okay, so we all reach the same. We probably have similar vocabularies and we reach them at different time. I find that each have their also their traps, right? Each Sometimes I think in, in Japanese Reiki, we are so obsessed with non-duality or with this enlightenment that then that becomes, <laughs> you know, that becomes actually an ego trap, right? We want to be enlightened, uh-huh. we want to go to non-dual space versus like, that's not part of the deal. You just have to do your daily practice, right? So we get a little bit also in love with some concepts that are beautiful, but they're only achieved through very humble daily practice. So we also have that. And then the other, obviously, a lot of like leaving the power to other beings or also ourselves that sometimes is a little bit disempowering, right? Or a little obsession with that power, which is our equivalent of the enlightenment probably. So we Mm -hmm. all have our benefits, our traps, and we all have very different personalities. So I I find very interesting to talk with people, again, 30 years into their practice, uh, with serious practice, no matter what the lineage. And I'm like, we're so much more alike than I ever expected, right? I expected like, okay, I'm doing this interview, but, and then I'm like in love with the person. I'm like, wow such light and so much beauty so it's interesting yeah but you and i are like yeah very <laughs> well there, there are different paths up the mountain and so some of those paths i think are closer together and then some of them are a little bit further apart but ultimately we're getting to that top of that same mountain right yeah um, and, I, and i think too you know i always think about you know hawaii takata's teaching which is let reiki teach you so there is going to be this new you know reiki being the unifying force so regardless of the way that we practice or the things that we bring into our practice or take away from our practice, Reiki is always going to be that unifying force. So if you're practicing, if you're, if you're practicing with a certain kind of mindset and you're practicing and following the precepts, you're going to get to the same place over time anyway. Right. Um, so I think that's what, and I, and I think it's great that because of the interviews that you're doing, that you're starting to see that because, you know, as you and I both know, there's a lot of this, you know, this Reiki is better than that Reiki or this Reiki is more pure than that Reiki. And the truth is that even Japanese style Reiki is not more pure or authentic than some of the, you know, the Western lineages. Um, the only difference is that it's more rooted in the cultural traditions yes. that 
that, you know, that Reiki came from, right? That where Reiki originated from. And of course, does not have a lot of the other, you know, Western add-ins that were that were incorporated into the system later. But that doesn't necessarily make this practice more <clears throat> authentic or more real or more um powerful or, you know, whatever these adjectives are that that people like to add to the practice. Um, because it's really just ultimately about how you practice. Yeah. And and I think that that is a really important is how you practice. It's your mindset at the end, right? So talking about mindset and these also traps a little bit about the practices like where we can fall. Uh, I love to because again people see all of you and you have like years of practice and you've come a lot of things it's like I'm never going to be like you I'm just starting and I'm very confused I don't even know where to place my hands and we all were there at one point so I like for everyone to share one oops or a teachable lesson something that maybe you shift your mindset or that was like a complete mistake but made you laugh and gave you a big aha into the practice Hmm. that's a really good question I'm wondering if I have to come back to you about that. Not because I haven't had plenty of teachable lessons. I'm just trying to think of one that would stand out to me in particular. Maybe maybe the less is more thing. I think what I've been, you know, because I've been seeing this with um, some of the clients that I have been working with and there tends to be sometimes this idea that if a little Reiki is good, then more Reiki is better. And I think that I've had to learn with some of my clients that that is not always the case, that for some people, maybe because they are so sensitive energetically or that maybe their their whole energetic and nervous system is so in disarray for one reason or another, that they actually cannot tolerate long Reiki sessions, Um, right? And that's not something that we would have thought about because, and and yes, you know, we talk about things like healing responses and all of that, but typically when we talk about healing responses, it's something that happens after the session. It's not usually something that someone experiences during the session. Um, you know, for example, when we look at even Hawaii Takata's history, when she was receiving Reiki in Japan, you know, she reported that she had, you know, terrible diarrhea and all of these like physical, uh, physical actions that were happening as a result of her body returning to balance. So it was detoxifying all of this stuff that had built up into her system. Um, and so we know that those things can happen as a result of Reiki, but what happens when you're in a session with someone and they become very uncomfortable, right? I mean, they're experiencing actual physical pain, even though your hands are lightly on them, right? They're, they're feeling this, like feeling like they're, they're, they're getting nauseous or they are feeling physical pain in their body. And I've had that happen with some clients and I am not projecting my own energy into them. I've been doing this long enough. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty aware of what I, I'm doing and I'm very good about maintaining my own boundaries in my practice. But these things happen sometimes. And sometimes it can be so uncomfortable that I have to stop. And I've gotten good at just saying, okay, I, I see that you're uncomfortable. I'm going to move my hands now. I'm going to move my hands somewhere else. 
and see if that helps. But ultimately what happens in the end is that whether we have a shorter session because maybe they just can't physically handle it, or I move my hands to another area to allow for some time for whatever is going on in that other part of the body to kind of just balance and settle out, they, they do feel much better later. But I am just becoming more and more aware that as, as someone doing this work, right, we have to rely on a lot of information. We have to rely on, on our intuition. We have to rely on what we're seeing happening physically with the person that we are working on, the client. We have to be paying attention to a lot of different things. So that mindfulness piece really comes into um, play here. But I think if I had just stuck with this idea that we get, right, that Reiki goes wherever it's needed, that more Reiki, you know, just keep going, right? You know, if there's an area of discomfort, just keep going until you push through. Well, that those things can actually be very damaging to people. Um, and if nothing else, it might contribute to someone having like so much discomfort, they might not come back. <laughs> so they might think that, that the session was harmful to them rather than helpful. So I think that, you know, this is, those have been teachable lessons for me in that like part of it's letting go of my ego, like, you know, okay, well, I need to be doing the whole, I need to be doing more. I need to be doing something different. I need to be adding something in. I need to be taking something away. You know, in other words, like I am not part of this mix <laughs> other than that I'm facilitating. And it's important for me to hold safe space for the person who is receiving Reiki, right? Safe, comfortable space. And if it's not comfortable for them, then, you know, we need to reassess and we need to pull back. And it's okay to do that. I'm not doing anything wrong. Sometimes it just may be more than what that person is capable of handling at that moment. And that's okay. Um, but I think about a lot of the lessons that we are often taught about Reiki, about how Reiki goes wherever it's needed, which may or may not be true. We don't actually know um, that we can direct Reiki that if, you know, we feel and that, you know, I'm going to get technical here, but that biosin, you know, we're feeling really intense biosin to just keep hanging out there until it's done. Well, if the, if the person, if the client is experiencing a lot of discomfort, is it really fair to do that to them? Is that going to be helpful to them or is it actually going to be harmful? So, so these are all things that I think that um, as a practitioner, there were things that, first of all, I was never taught. <laughs> I had to learn them by doing. Yeah. Um, but, but also, you know, there are things that in the beginning, when you don't know better, you make mistakes and you have to learn from them. For not coming with one very fast, you came up with a wonderful one that actually is very seldom talk about so I'm really grateful because I'm sure a lot of young practitioners are going through that it's like they're feeling nausea but I keep going and then they're getting not only that person may not get a Reiki treatment ever again but then in their practice there is so much fear so thank you so so much for sharing that it is a really fantastic oops or teachable lesson so thank you because it took me yeah. many years to go there as well and like and it was more about they have the right to lead their own session, right? Like I can go to their food and leave, especially because I experienced the opposite one day with that treatment. I'm like, mm. you know, like sometimes also receiving Reiki sessions, we learn how to give them, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and that again goes back to that let Reiki teach you part. And and sometimes that's about listening and knowing when when to back away. And I think, you know, now that I think about that, it 
brings me back to a much earlier story when I was newer to my practice. And I worked with a client who had experienced some pretty significant trauma. Um, and it was one that she shared with me. So, you know, we tried to be really careful, but what happened was, um, and during the, uh, during and after the session, I mean, it actually made, you know, it brought up more of the, um, uh, flashbacks and other things. And so, although she initially felt relaxed during and after the session, it actually triggered more of the traumatic stuff. And that doesn't happen very often. So I don't want people thinking that this is like something that happens all the time, but it is something that we have to be mindful of in professional practice, right? This isn't all love and light all the time. <laughs> healing is healing is hard work. Um, and, and although Reiki in itself is a beautiful and mostly gentle practice, People come to this come to this with holding on to a lot of different things, and we don't always know what the impact of that is going to be in a session. So again, it's that whole teachable thing. Like back then, I would not have known to say, "Okay, let's space these sessions out, or let's do shorter sessions to make sure that you can physically handle this without it triggering flashbacks or without it triggering other stuff. But I didn't know that then. I mean, now we know more about like trauma-informed practices, you know, and also I'm a lot more confident. Like it's not, I understand that it's not a failure of Reiki or a failure of me if someone has difficulty in the beginning with this, right? Because of one reason or another. It's just that sometimes they need more time. They need less. They need things to go slower. I, I really appreciate you sharing all of this beautiful wisdom. Thank you so much. I am so glad that we had this time to talk today. And I feel like we could have a whole other hour, you know, because yeah. it keeps going deep. Like our Reiki practice keeps going deeper and deeper. No, thank you so, ma- so much for making the time. And we probably will talk uh, further on. We had this cause perhaps next year is doing a roundtable about diversity and Reiki. So mm. for everyone listening to this, stay tuned. Uh, we'll have it in 2024. Uh, 2023 has been rough in terms of scheduling. So it's been flowing. Uh, but I really appreciate the chance to get to know you better. And similar similarities still creeping and creeping up. So it's kind of like, oh, my God, we have to do an astral chart soon. But you're very much. <laughs> but it's very... And thank you so much. And we'll stay in touch. I'll mail you the drawing, of course. Uh, hopefully tomorrow I have one that I have meant to send a couple of weeks. So I got <laughs> Well, thank you. Them. Thank you so, so much uh, for the opportunity to be here. Um, just the chance to get to know you better. And, you know, and I, and I love really connecting um, with people and finding out more about their practices too. It's just... You know, just being able to have the space with Reiki is just always, it's always lovely and enlightening. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dana. Thank you. You take care. Thank you for listening to the Dive into Reiki podcast. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at diveintoreiki.com slash blog. If you found this episode helpful, please hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, or just share it with your friends. It makes all the difference. Thank you. Gracias. Merci. Thank you.